Well, hi everyone. Uh, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning and we're just going to be looking at the first uh, 13 verses. How about you pray with me? Um, Father God, please would you speak to us through your scriptures? Would you rebuke, challenge, encourage and uphold us that we might hold on to Christ as he holds on to us? And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know about you, but as I read the Bible, I find some parts of it, they're just easier to grasp early on than others are. When Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, it's not easy to do, but it's kind of easy to understand what he's saying. Or when James says, be doers of the word and not just hearers only, that's something that I can kind of immediately grasp and make sense of. Uh, but one of the wrestles when we come to a letter like 2 Corinthians it's so intensely personal and it's so much about what's going on for certain people at a certain time in history that's very hard to work out what's taking place. Um, and you notice it uh, in the very words of our passage today. So pick it up with me in verses 11 to 13. Just listen to the kind of depth and intensity of this relationship. Paul says to the Corinthians, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as the children, widen your hearts also. What was the issue that was going on there? What was happening for Paul, what was happening for the Corinthians, and how on earth does that relate to us? And actually, that situation is kind of intensified and more complicated by the way that Paul speaks to a group of people that we know are Christians. Paul has been to Corinth, he's preached the gospel, he established the church there, they're believers, but listen to how he pleads with them in verses 1 and 2. Working together with him then, we appeal to you, Corinthians, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favourable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Uh, it's like Paul has taken this church of people who know Jesus, uh, and apparently, and he's speaking to them almost like they're non-Christians. This is like what we would expect an evangelistic sermon to look like. But this is not an evangelistic sermon at the level of kind of calling unbelievers into Christ. No, it's an evangelistic sermon that's calling on believers not to let go. So as we wrestle with the deeply, intensely personal nature of this letter, I want you to first point out today really what's going on here, and then secondly talk a little bit about what that means for us. But what's going on is that Paul is writing to a group of people that he loves deeply in the Lord Jesus, who he's desperately concerned for. He's spent time in the city, he's preached the gospel, he's established the church. But as we'll find out later in the letter, they are now on the edge of deciding whether to stick with the gospel that they've received for Paul, from Paul, or they will turn away uh, to a uh, false gospel preached by the super apostles. And the letter is actually a bit like listening to one end of a phone conversation. You know, when you're sitting listening to someone speaking on the phone and you're trying to work out what's going on from only hearing half the conversation. It's a bit like that. You hear Paul defending himself over and over again. Now, let me just show it to you a little bit. Chapter two, Paul says, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word. As men of sincerity commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And then in chapter four, we, we've renounced disgraceful underhanded ways, refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. And then chapter 5 and verse 11, what we are is known to God. And I hope it's also known to your conscience. 
In chapter 6, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. Chapter 7, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church has been very unsettled and fractious. And he's actually writing a letter to them in order to encourage them to stick with him, not just because he's a megalomaniac or he desperately needs people to kind of approve of his ministry, but Paul knows that if they don't trust him and they don't trust his message, then they will actually let go of the message that comes from God and so lose the gospel itself. And so the deep, personal, desperate nature of this letter is actually of a pastor writing to a people, group of people that he knows and loves, who he, whom he has seen, hear the word of Jesus and come to Christ, crying out to them to take the truth seriously and to keep cling to God because they're in desperate danger of throwing it all away. And so verse 1, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In a favourable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the favourable time. Now is the day of salvation. Paul is saying to this church, you are on the edge of throwing it all away. Listen to God. Now, in order to help them to cling to the message that he's preaching to them, Paul actually wants to defend himself and his own ministry. In fact, most of this chapter is Paul explaining to them how his ministry, which seems to them so weak and frail and inconsequential, is actually a ministry that in every way uh, is commendable in the sight of God and is true and trustworthy. And so what I want you to do with me is just notice how Paul commends himself. See, verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. How does Paul commend his ministry so that the Corinthians might trust him? Well, firstly, verses four and five, he talks about his endurance in serving Jesus. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, Paul basically says there's kind of two spheres, if you like, of his endurance. On the one hand, he's endured afflictions, beatings and imprisonments. Paul has experienced opposition because he's declared the truth of Jesus. And at every point he's said, I will not give in to other people. I will not be caused to be silent. And even if people threaten my life or my well-being, I will refuse to speak anything else except for the truth about Christ. Paul commends his ministry by saying, I'm going to speak the truth of God, even if it costs me deeply. But do you notice that that cost is not just in external conflict? There are also just those sets of things that come with the job. Labours, sleepless nights, hunger. Paul's ministry of bringing the gospel to people caused him lots of just personal difficulty because he poured out his life for people. He laboured for people. He got up early. He visited people in their homes. He went to bed late at night. I suspect there were times when he didn't sleep because of his concern for the people that he was ministering the gospel to. And he was even hungry travelling from town to town because he loved people. And so Paul says, stick with me. My life displays to you the depth of my love because of what I've been willing to go through so that you will hear the gospel. It's an encouragement, isn't it? And also a challenge. 
But as Paul commends himself, he doesn't just point to that kind of, I persevered through difficulty. Secondly, he points to the way in which he persevered through that difficulty. Look at verses six and seven. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Paul persevered in all of this, but did not resort to ungodliness. Um, even as he was persecuted, even as he was sleepless, even as he was hungry and he loved these people, he persevered in patience and kindness, the work of the spirit and genuine love and truthful speech. There was an integrity to his life that played itself out in every element of his ministry to them. And it's impressive to think about, isn't it? In the face of opposition and difficulty and distress, he didn't end up trying to say more than there was to say. He didn't try to impress people with promises that he couldn't keep. He didn't spend all of his time talking himself up, but he sought to speak about the truth that God had given him the depth of the riches of the message of Jesus that he shared at every opportunity. So Paul has persevered. He's persevered in godliness. And then thirdly, and I, for me, this is the most remarkable section of this little part. Paul talks about how every point that his ministry might be seen as something weak or inconsequential. He, and I suspect that this is actually the power of God at work in him, is able to see it through a totally different lens. So just listen to verses eight to 10. We are treated as imposters. Lots of people think Paul's an idiot and that he's speaking lies. And yet we are true. As unknown, most people think of him as a nobody. People think of him as having unimpressive speech and not being really very, and yet he says, I'm, I know that I'm well known. And I think it's a reference to his awareness that he knows that God the Father sees him and commends his ministry even when other people don't. He says as dying, and you think about him being stoned and thrown in prison and persecuted and whatever, and behold, we live because in the end, his life is in God's hand rather than someone else. As punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, there's a deep sadness in his heart as people reject the gospel or people that he's loved walk in sin, and yet always rejoicing. Paul somehow knows, even in the midst of the hardship of ministry, that there is joy because God is his father and he sees God at work. And so he describes himself as poor and yet having the privilege of making many rich. He didn't have much possibly not a lot more than the clothes on his back as he wandered from city to city. And yet he delighted in the privilege of the riches that he brought to people as he invited them into a relationship with God through Christ. And so Paul says, even though I have nothing, yet by the grace of Christ, I possess everything. The whole of the new creation is his inheritance. And in Christ, he can have no more than he actually has. Brothers and sisters, I just want to commend those verses to you and encourage you maybe just to go away and sit and read them over a few times today and just think about what happened to Paul. Like we think about our own circumstances at the moment, which are painful and frustrating and disappointing in so many ways. But Paul experienced all of these things and yet at every point, 
by the goodness of God and the power of the Spirit, he was actually able to view them in a totally different way because of his gospel perspective on the world. And I just encourage you perhaps to kind of meditate on those things and to think about what does it mean to have Christ as my king? It doesn't matter what people think of me, God knows me. Uh, it doesn't matter that I'm poor because I get to make many rich. The joy and privilege of ministry is actually in the task and in working for God. So what's going on in this passage? Paul is writing to a group of people on the edge of walking away from him and therefore walking away from God. And so he writes over and over to commend his ministry. And today he does that by saying, I persevered through all sorts of things, seeking godliness because the gospel gave me a perspective to live differently. And so at the end, though, he cries out, Corinthians, I love you. I have had my heart open to you. Will you please open your hearts to me? He pleads with them to stick with the gospel that he has brought to them and to stay in relationship with him. Now, friends, the big question, though, is what, what do we do with all of that? Because it's very interesting, isn't it? It really depends on where you stand in this passage. You see, should we stand with the Corinthians? Actually, Paul is appealing to us as people who are on the edge, perhaps, of throwing it all away. Now, I want to say that there's a real danger in that. I'm not sure that Paul would have written to every single one of his congregations, and he did, indeed he didn't write to other congregations in these words. But it is a reminder of the significance of clinging to the truth of what Paul says. And so I just want to invite you for a moment this morning just to reflect on how you are engaging with that. Being here at college, you read lots of Paul's letters, you engage with lots of Paul's theology. Are there areas of what Paul teaches that make you cringe? Are there truths that Paul delivers from God that make you want to shrink back? Is it perhaps the doctrine of judgment and hell? And when that comes back up, it feels, makes you feel awkward. Or do you feel yourself getting a bit frustrated and grumpy when Paul starts to talk about the differences between men and women? Or do you find that when Paul puts his finger on a particular area of godliness, uh, you start to become self-justifying? Um, Paul knew that what he was teaching was the truth of God and if the Corinthians let go of that, they let go of God. Now, brothers and sisters, you're in a space where you're being exposed to that truth all the time. And I just want to invite you to think about your own heart. Are there truths that Paul teaches that you are wary of or finding uncomfortable? And if you are, I want to say, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Don't hide those things away. Don't run away from them. Find someone and start to actually confront it. Talk about it. What makes you uncomfortable? What do you need to come to terms with what Paul has to say that might actually bring you closer to God's truth and help you to understand the riches of his goodness? Um, I don't think, although it's possible, that some of us in the secret places of our hearts that we haven't admitted to anybody are actually standing on that place where we're going to let go of the gospel. I don't think that's the majority of us. But it's helpful for us to hear the significance of that warning and the depth of Paul's pleading. If you let go of him, you let go of God. But I think for us as well, there is a gentle encouragement, I think, here and potentially a small rebuke as we think about our own ministry. The Apostle Paul was so gripped by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that he gave his whole life out of love for the people that he preached to. Do we realise that there is actually a greater call in the scriptures than to self-protection? Self-protection is not the highest virtue that we possess. 
to pour yourself out in love for people because Christ is king is actually commendable in the sight of God. And God will, in his gracious goodness, carry us in that, even when it feels overwhelming and perhaps even beyond our ability to do. Do you need to hear the encouragement today that through honour and dishonour, it is possible to live with kindness, love and patience because we know spiritual truth. It doesn't matter if we are unknown or poor or feel like we have nothing. God knows us. And we have the privilege of making others rich in Christ. Do you need to take that word and treasure it in your heart and remind yourself of the privilege of what you get to do, even though it's hard and tiring? I pray that God might encourage you and remind you that he sees your work today. Amen, I'm going to hand you back.